and welcome to Lots of Planets Have a North, a Northern Doctor Who podcast. I'm Kieran. I'm Bethan. I'm Jacob. And you join us for our look at season 13, which is the first Tom Baker season that we've looked at. So I think that's a good place to start. Because mm. naturally, being a Doctor Who podcast, Tom Baker comes up a bit, even when you're not specifically talking about any of his stories. But I, we've not looked at him in any kind of depth, at any kind of length so far, or breadth for that matter, or width. So uh, any of his dimensions at all, in fact. So in time and space, mm, mm, dimensions in time. So what do we think of Tom Baker? How does he how does he rank for us in the the great pantheon of doctors? Um, I think that. He, I would say probably if if I was pushed that he was my favourite Doctor and I think a lot of my favourite stories are the ones that he appears in mm. however I don't think this season necessarily is contains my favourite performances but that's not to say that they're bad it's just that I feel like there are stories elsewhere where he gets to kind of do a bit more and have a bit more fun with the role but I do enjoy I did I mean it's it's always a, it's, he's kind of one of those people where it's always a pleasure to to watch them and to see them isn't it so hmm. can't really can't really complain <laughs> yeah I mean I've, I've found in the course of watching this season actually because there's a there's a, at least a couple of stories in this season that are like fairly sort of grim fairly sort of like earnest and uh, kind of serious minded and there's something about just having Tom Baker on screen sort of subverts that I wouldn't quite say undermines it but like he brings a very different kind of energy um, to a lot of those stories which will uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll come to as we go and I think it's a real kind of it's a real asset to a lot of those stories to have that i think as we'll as we'll kind of see as we go on what about you jacob where, where do you sit on the on tom baker <laughs> where do you sit on tom baker where would you sit on him wherever he is most comfortable with i imagine mm. yeah exactly uh, <laughs> yeah i i think he's one of my favorite doctors um i've never really picked a favorite um i think I don't know. I've always found that question too difficult to answer. Hmm. But um, you, you know, because I think I think some of them are, they're very difficult to compare, and they all have, you know, their own their own sort of strengths. Um, but yeah, I think Tom Baker's definitely one of my favourites. I think he's just kind of made for the part, really. You know, I think he himself was kind of naturally eccentric anyway, and it comes through in the performance. Um, you know, he just he just really inhabits the character, understands it. And I think particularly in like his early sort of years, like this season and some of the others, I think mm. he's got quite a good balance between sort of humour and the more uh, a more sort of like irritable and like darker side, I guess. Mm-hmm. Which is something that he plays up in quite a few of these episodes to kind of express the enormity of some of the 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 threats that they face uh, i mean particularly in pyramids of mars and mm. uh, the seeds of doom but yeah i think i think later on i think at least for me i, I find that 
he doesn't have some of the restraining influences that he had behind the scenes early on. I think, you know, they kind of stopped him from becoming like too comedic. And I think there are, much as I like his comedic stuff, I think there are moments in later episodes where mm. it isn't done so well. There are some where it's done very well, like City of Death is kind of the prime example. But yeah, and mm. Um, mm. I guess him and Liz Sladen, as many people have said before, are kind of a really good uh, team and they work really well together. So mm. yeah, no, I'm uh, yeah one of my favourites, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, certainly one of mine as well. And I think it is interesting to contrast the the Tom Baker of this kind of era. Like, this is his second season in the role. So he's kind of, he's in an interesting place where he's kind of settled into the role. Although I I would say he's settled into the role by five minutes into Robot. Uh, honestly, he kind of, he really comes out all guns blazing. But um, he's kind of settled into the role. And I think more importantly, the writers have kind of, grasped what he's doing with the character mm. and so you get some really interesting moments where because one of the, in, the other interesting things about tom baker more than any of his predecessors um and more even than most of his successors is he really tries very hard to make the doctor alien but with kind of strange reactions like he he often talked about the thing he would do where he would he would smile where it was clearly inappropriate to do so uh, given the circumstances. Um, but there's other things that... There are moments that he starts to be given, like... The one that kind of stands out for me in this season is in Terror of the Zygons, actually. When he and Sarah are trapped in the like decompression chamber. And he sort of hypnotizes her into unconsciousness. To prevent her from suffering, essentially. Which is a really strange moment. And not an entirely comfortable one in some ways. For all that there's a kind of compassion behind it. It's something that's actually quite hard to imagine really any other Doctor doing, apart from maybe McCoy, I suppose, which is kind of one of the the great tells of a really good performance as the Doctor is having those kinds of moments that are unimaginable for any other Doctor, I think. I uh, can't imagine any other Doctor doing it and it being tonally consistent. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I'm not totally sure that with Tom Baker, it's tonally consistent, but somehow even that kind of works to his advantage. Mm. It's a, it's an interesting performance because it's actually a lot more finely judged than it appears, I think. Mm. It appears very chaotic, but I think it's actually a very a very careful performance. And he he knows what he's doing in every moment, especially at this point. I think there there probably are points later on Kind of as you were saying, Jacob, where he is a little bit more kind of unrestrained for various reasons, mm. which is probably, if not his performance, probably to the show's detriment at certain points. But um, certainly at this point, I think there's a real kind of, I would almost say a real artistry to what he's doing. And it's it's while there are certainly stories in his tenure that get very dull, he is never dull. Which is a real accomplishment, I think. Mm. What's the matter? You should be glad to be going home. The Earth isn't my home, Sarah. I'm a Time Lord. Oh, I know you're a Time Lord. You don't understand the implications. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. What's that supposed to mean? 
It means I've lived for something like 750 years. Oh, you soon be middle-aged. Yes! That time I found something better to do than run round after the Brigadier. Since we're talking about uh, Tom Baker's tenure and talking about the kind of the differences between where we are here and where we are later on, it's probably worth uh, talking a little bit about where we are in terms of his tenure. Because this is the, like, his, as I've said, his second season. And maybe more pertinently in some ways, it's the the middle season of um, what's known as the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Uh, under producer Philip Hinch- Hinchcliffe and uh, script editor Robert Holmes, who, in one way or another, contributes a couple of stories in this season, and this is a, an era that is kind of it's really beloved by fans, and really beloved by certainly kind of classically by fans. It's like most of these stories tend to do very well in polls and stuff like that, which is interesting because, as I think will become clear over the course of this episode. I am something of a hater. Which is to say, I actually really like some stories in this era because they're really good. But I think the general aesthetics of this kind of, of this era don't sit very well with me. And a lot of these are criticisms that have been articulated by other people before. The major one that arises a lot and that is kind of undeniable is the the lack of women in quite a lot of stories. There are a few stories this season where Sarah Jane is literally the only woman and it culminates in the following season where we have the deadly assassin where there are literally no women on screen um, for the entire four episodes. But there are other things. Like I, I find the, I find some of the tone to be kind of overly grim at times, overly sort of, serious-minded in a way that I kind of naturally react against. Um, partly because I, I think the, the show is often at its best when it's not taking itself too seriously, which is something that I think Tom Baker adds really well to some of these stories. But also, I don't think it's it's the thing that the show necessarily always does best, that kind of uh, vaguely gothic horror tone. And I think often... When it is done well, it's because the show is kind of playing around with various other elements that's throwing into the mix, which I think I'll talk about with some of the, uh, actually, the last two stories in this season in particular. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I don't know if either of you have any thoughts on that. I guess I'm somewhat conflicted about about the period. Hmm. You know, because I watched this stuff when I was very, very young. Mm Hmm. I think that the gothic, the gothic kind of aesthetic, can be complementary in many ways. Mm. You know, I, I like, I can definitely see how it fits with the the tone of the the program, and I think it's also quite a smart move from a kind of production perspective. Of well, the BBC is really good at doing period, you know, drama, but they're not so good at doing mm. big alien spaceships. And I, and I think yeah that it's interesting from that perspective, and I think it's it's a good idea from that perspective as well. And I think that's why some stories, you know, visually hold up better in this period than than some will mm. later on and and prior to. Having said that, there are also a number of occasions, and I'm I'm going to talk about this later probably, mainly to give me something to say about an episode that I find very very dull. <laughs> 
um, where the I feel like I can hazard a guess which one it might be. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, like like in some cases, yeah, I sorry, think I think there are um, instances where the gothic is put alongside this kind of more like popular modernist, as someone like Mark Fisher would put it, like BBC aesthetic that does tend to clash mm. and kind of defeats the point of from a production perspective, having a gothic horror motif. And also, I think the other thing which I think we're going to raise that crops up throughout this season in particular is the way in which gothic horror as an aesthetic is often associated with the reactionary, you know, and with kind of British imperialism and and all of those things. And I think the way I kind of... The way I'd probably kind of put it is that I guess particularly with this season set in kind of the mid-70s when Britain's kind of in economic turmoil uh, and you've just gone through a period of, uh, or and you're still going through a period of, of decolonisation, in many ways that aesthetic really represents what Paul Gilroy terms like a form of post-colonial melancholia, like, you know, a kind of nostalgia for empire whilst ignoring the the kind of oppression and the exploitation that underpinned it. So, yeah, very conflicted. Um, I think there are, as you were kind of alluding to, I think there are interesting ways in which this aesthetic has been taken and, you know, subverted um, or critiqued, um, particularly in forms of hauntology, which, again, I'll, I'll kind of come back to later on. But, yeah, um, yeah, so mixed feelings overall. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Put it this way, I often I often think it's kind of, it's not a coincidence that the last Hinchcliffe Holmes story is Talons of Wang Chiang, mm. because I think a lot of the logic of it really comes to a head there, and I absolutely do not mean that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I should probably briefly like orient myself in relation to my understanding of this era first because um I mean part of the remit of part of the kind of idea behind doing this podcast the way that we do it is that the way that the kind of contemporary viewer experiences Doctor Who is likely to be in sort of bunches of a, a series or season box set or like in odd stories yeah yeah like I mean classically the way a lot of Doctor Who fans will have experienced the classic series is kind of a bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we bounce around between seasons. And so similarly, I don't have as like comprehensive an understanding of where the bounds of the different eras are. And um, for example, I hadn't, prior to us watching the series for um, the podcast, I'd seen Pyramids of Mars once a very long time ago. I'd seen bits of that and whichever other ones were on for Doctor Who on Twitch, as well as the entirety of um, of Seeds of Doom. That's the only one that I'd seen like all of, I think, um, previously. So I didn't come into this with a clear idea of what this season meant, what this era meant. I was quite surprised to discover partway through our process of working through the stories that this was apparently like one of the sort of highlight seasons Mm. for a lot of fans because whilst I found things to enjoy in 
a lot of it. I, I would say that I really enjoyed probably half the stories. I didn't find it that like groundbreaking to me and maybe that's just because I'm coming to it as like a new Who viewer initially, I don't know. I found the, I liked some of the gothic aesthetics, I think it works best when it's kind of in a campy way. I think that the campiness really, this will probably come up again when we discuss Brain of Morbius, but I think that the campiness is really helpful in terms of making it palatable and I think mm. also yeah Tom Baker's performance is probably part of that with the kind of having fun with the material mm. but I think that sometimes it does come down to kind of um unpleasantness for the sake of it like a lot of the treatment of Sarah Jane mm. across the whole season is quite just nasty like having her hair pulled getting choked getting like kind of felt up when she's being searched mm. or or it has the like visuals of that anyway and I was kind of watching it and I was like wait does someone in the production team have like a kink or something and I just think it's just like being nasty though <laughs> I don't even know mm, could be both <laughs> could be both but like yeah I, I found it a mixed bag I would say mm. Yeah, I mean, we can talk um, when we get to the end a bit more about, like, having been through the season as a whole, how we think it kind of stacks up. But um, suffice to say, like, of the the kind of, including this, the three classic Who seasons we've looked at so far, this is not my favourite. Yep. Should we talk about Sarah Jane? Well, I was thinking we kind of have already, because we oh, did, right. did uh, kind of season three, 11. Yeah, no, I was going to say this, sorry. Because um, we have talked about Sarah Jane in general. Uh, when we talked about season 11. Now, obviously, as many people have said, uh, Sarah Jane with Tom Baker is kind of a different thing to Sarah Jane with John Pertwee. But I think at least some of that will kind of come out as we go. And we've, we've kind of touched on it already a little bit, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about Terror of the Zygons. Doctor, do you mind telling us exactly what you're doing? A little experiment in orthodontology, Mr. Huckle. Orthodontology? Teeth. Teeth. The scientific study of teeth. It's a cast of a tooth, wouldn't you say? Teeth? Doctor, you can't be serious. Teeth are very serious things, Mr. Huckle. Look, let's get this straight. Are you trying to tell me those rigs were chewed up by a set of giant molars? Yes. A set of giant molars that can chew through solid steel as easily as paper. And I think the interesting thing about Terror of the Zygons now is that it's kind of... It's entered into an unfortunate position where for nearly 40 years, it was the only Zygon story. And it, the Zygons seemed to be very fondly remembered. Uh, were definitely very fondly remembered, in fact. Uh, possibly on the strength of the story, possibly just because they're a cool design and a cool kind of idea. And so that naturally gave it a certain amount of status. But now we also have Day of the Doctor. And we have the Zygon two-parter from series 9. And the problem is, Terror of the Zygons is a good story. But to my mind, it kind of pales in comparison to both of those two. Specifically in how it uses the Zygons. And in how it uses the idea of shape-shifting aliens that impersonate people on Earth. And you might be thinking at this point that, like, well, it's... It, feels a bit unfair to critique an episode for not doing an idea as well as the episodes that come after it and build off it. And you're not, you would not be wrong, 
Um, I think that is fair. But like, you know, we can only critique the episode in front of us as it is. And I cannot help but compare it in that way. Because one of the one of the weird things about it is that throughout this entire story, it's hard to say whether there's any ever any real doubt as to whether anyone you see is a human or a Zygon. Like, there are a few people who turn out to be Zygons later on. But those three are... There's the nurse, who is the shiftiest person on Earth. And is constantly giving, like, significant shifty eye to camera. There's the caber, who we first see shooting the lad who has just washed up from the oil rig. And then there's the um, the Duke of Forgale, who is, to be fair, introduced just as kind of a local aristocrat. Uh, so he's probably the closest it comes to kind of passing off one of the Zygons as an actual human. Problem is, he disappears from the story for like about two episodes. So there's not a huge amount of suspense really going on there. Even when we have a Zygon duplicate of Harry, we know all along that it is a Zygon version of Harry. There's no tension there at all. Which is a shame because, as I say, that is something that will be done significantly better later on in the other two Zygon stories. And I don't want to sound like I'm too down on this story either because I actually do like it. I think the the Scottish setting is fun. It's kind of... It's a... It's a very kind of self-aware kind of theme park version of Scotland. Uh, Robin Banks Stewart, the writer, was actually Scottish, I have discovered. And so at least some of this is probably deliberate. But there's like the flimsily explained presence of bagpipes in the sort of um, functioning unit HQ. And the brigadier is wearing a kilt for very little reason. And they bully him so much for it that then he doesn't come back as a series regular. Yeah, yeah. It, they bully him off the show. <laughs> so, yeah, that's fun. Yeah, I mean, another thing that I actually really enjoy about this story that is strange but, like, quite fun is that it's kind of a Pertwee story. For one thing, it's a unit story. And it's obviously it is the the last appearance of the Brigadier for some seven years. But it's, it's still kind of got that unit heart to it. It's the Doctor working in conjunction with unit, albeit reluctantly in this instance. It's very concerned with energy in a way that a lot of the, the unit stories were. There's the kind of, there's the, the Doctor's kind of disdain for humanity's reliance on oil. There's the sense of like the oil company that are that is like ruining the local area. That thread does kind of disappear after maybe the second episode and the... The American oil oil baron kind of turns out to just be straightforwardly a good guy. But it's a it's an interesting and a fun thread. Oh yeah, the other thing that makes it a Pertwee story, of course, is that there is um there we get some quite extended chase scenes in episode two. No I mean nothing nothing that measures up to the extravaganza of Planet of the Spiders, obviously. Um yeah, it's it's nice to see them have a comeback. I suppose. And again, I don't want to sound too harsh on, the, on this story because I think it is generally, like, it's a fairly well-plotted story. Uh, the Zygons are, are for all that I think their potential isn't fully explored here, uh, I think they're, they're, a, they're a great design. They're a cool idea. I, I really like how 
the story builds in a natural reason for them to keep the the humans they've kidnapped alive. I think that's actually quite um quite neatly done. And yeah, I I'm a fan, but I have notes. That's where I would say I land on this. Bethan. So, I have something interesting to say, firstly, following on from what you were saying about how they don't really utilise the uh, potential for kind of um, obfuscating who's a Zygon and who's a human. Mm. Because, uh, actually, my first exposure to this story, apart from the presence of the Zygons in my Doctor Who Monsters and Villains book, was um, a Target novelization that I read. And I actually had a memory of the story that involved a lot more of not being sure who was a Zygon. And I don't know if that's ah. just because, like, there's less kind of obvious cues or what have you. But I remember finding it quite... Um, I don't know if I was, like, confusing it with horror fang rock or something as well. I don't fully... This is, like, vague memories. But um, I was kind of expecting more of that and then there wasn't. So that was a bit disappointing because I'm up for that kind of hijinks. But um, I think the Zygons are a really good Doctor Who monster. Like, hmm. I think they're a good idea in general, but I think specifically for Doctor Who, they are great. And I think even though a lot of people are very keen on them, I still think they're quite underrated as a kind of alien species because, partly because of that inbuilt reason, like, they don't want to kill people that they still need to keep alive to impersonate, which in comparison to... Uh, quite a few other stories this season mm. i am glad that they have that reason because there are so many times i think i've probably got notes for quite a few other stories where i'm like but why do the villains not simply kill the doctor and or sarah jane instead of letting them just sort of scamper off but of course from a sort of show perspective because of the audience it's aimed at they couldn't really kill beloved the doctor and beloved sarah jane mm. off but th it means that the stakes are very unclear a lot of the time but with the zygons you know why they keep people alive it makes sense basically and it's good i think the zygon costumes look great mm. uh they're used very judiciously you can tell they've only got two if you're paying attention but they use them in conjunction with the Zygons in human form often enough that it feels like there's a full kind of unit of Zygons there. Unit. Unit, yeah. Uh, speaking of units, uh, the Scarison <laughs> looks a lot worse. <laughs> and <laughs> it's quite strange because I think they pull this off a lot better with the crinoid in uh, Seeds of Doom. Mm in terms of having something that's really big, but you kind of know where it is in relation to the characters at all times. But I felt I feel like with the Scarison, it's quite difficult because a lot of the tension of particularly, I'm thinking of when it's pursuing the Doctor, is taken out by the fact that I could never quite figure out what the scale of it was supposed to be mm. or where it was in relation to him on this, like, moorland. It's ki so it's kind of odd to have a story that features the kind of best and worst of the design and utilization of alien props, but um, I think the Scarison is so isn't really the main event, so it kind of doesn't matter too much. I found it interesting that obviously this comes up more in the later Zygon stories, but the fact of them being that it's a refugee ship that's on its mm. way to the planet, which 
I don't necessarily have anything like tremendously sophisticated to say but I always find it interesting in the way that we see in stories like say The Unquiet Dead where at least ostensibly the alien menace is like just trying to find a new home planet so it's interesting to see that here I think it does add a bit of it adds some complexity to their motives however I don't know if it's fully realized because the fact that that is their motive doesn't really have any effect on the plot overall Mm. but it's still kind of um it's nice to have a something that's not just taking over the earth just because or purely for a certain resource or something it's a more nuanced potentially perspective they're very nuanced rubbery boys (laughs) and one girl Mm. uh in a shocking twist uh a female zygon who I think might be a female Zygon only because it would have been too weird to have a like male-voiced Zygon be turning into a nurse. Mm. <laughs> um, I think her name is Orla. Oh, that's nice. Which is an Irish name, so interesting. Just imagine her as Orla from Dairy Girls Old House. Yes, yes. So I'm not sure if the if that was why we got a female Zygon, just because they were squeamish about having boy Zygons. <laughs> I don't even know. But... Um, I love her and I'm glad, you know, good for her. (laughs) We did have some discussion over whether or not she counted as a female character. Like, for the purposes of, are there female characters in this story? But since we do see the nurse as well, the actual human nurse as well, and I think she might even have a line or two, we, this this one gets a pass. Uh, See, they get a pass for the nurse, but for me, the nurse and the Zygon don't fully count as separate characters. Ah, uh, I don't know how Jacob feels about this important distinction. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily count them as two, because it's not really explicit, is it, about the about the Zygon? Mm, so. Yeah. What about the story in general, then, uh, Jacob? Yeah, um, I think this is a solid story. I think the yeah. I mean, as you were saying, that the design of the Zygons, you know, looks great. There's one shot where I think they show them, like, from the lower half of the body, like the legs, they look less good. But when they just, you know, kind of avoid that and do, like, (laughs) top half and face, it's fine. I have to say, we were making comparisons between, you know, the modern Zygon episodes and this one. Uh, And I I do think Mm. that, I agree, I I think the modern Zygon episodes, I'll go into this in more detail... I have a I have a caveat to this, but largely I think the modern ones do do a better job of uh, employing the Zygons and you know using them in a way that's interesting thematically. Now, having said that, one thing that I do think is that I think the design in many ways is better in this than it is in the modern series. I think they look very rubbery in the modern mm-hmm. series. Like much more so than than here. Like, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just biased because I watched this when I was small. But I feel like they look more unnerving in this. I don't find them particularly scary in the new series. But, but yeah. Like, aside from that, the story itself. I actually think there is a way in which the Zygons are an interesting villain to have thematically in this particular story. It doesn't come through as strongly as in 
the modern episodes of the Zygon Invasion and in- Inversion and the Day of the Doctor. I think it's less self-conscious here, but I do think it's there. And that is that I think I think it's very interesting to place a story about, you know, essentially like uh, alien invaders who can steal people's body prints and become like them, a sort of like invasion of the body snatchers type thing. Um, I think it's very interesting to place that story in a Scottish setting at this particular point in history, in the 1970s. And really, what I'm kind of getting to here is that essentially I think it's a story about, maybe not self-consciously, but certainly it's registering at some level, it's a story about alienation, quite literally. And I guess the reason why I say that is because if you look at the the period in which this is this comes out, it comes out in between August and September 1975. The UK's just had two general elections, uh, one in February 74 and another in October. The first one returns essentially a uh, like a minority government, and I think the second they get a very very slim majority, a Labour government. What is interesting is. This is the period in which, in the late 60s, North Sea oil has been discovered, which is obviously something that kind of gets uh, acknowledged in the episode through this, like as you were saying, the American oil baron, I guess. But this is also the period at which there are deep questions about the sustainability of the union in the United Kingdom. So the SNP, between the two elections increase their number of MPs quite considerably. And they run on a slogan of, it's Scotland's oil. Mm. And then in 1977, a book that I've just started reading, only just, I'm not very far through it, Tom Nairn's Break, The Break of Britain comes out. Um, I mean, he'd written essays before, but like as a whole book, it comes out in 1977. So I think setting it in Scotland and having people taken away and kept by these aliens and then, you know, replaced by them, it gives you this sense of displacement that, you know, really, I guess people are feeling sort of, people in Scotland might be feeling like, I guess, distanced or whatever from from Westminster. And I think what's particularly interesting is the way you get these consistent references to characters who are sort of rooted in the community. So you get the pub landlord who talks about how his family's lived there for generations. You get the Duke of Forgill talking about how his family's mm. served the county for seven centuries or something, but that seems not to count these days, is what he says. And most of his sort of uh, workers at this the castle where he lives have, have gone to the oil rigs, they've gone to work for the oil company, and the landlord says the Duke hasn't been himself since the oil companies arrived. So there's a clear sense of that sense of displacement and alienation mm. is very much linked to the extraction of oil in the region. You know, and it, it does make sense because at first, first of all, it's private companies who are doing this, who have no relation to Scotland whatsoever and who are just getting the profits. And then later on, particularly when Tony Benn's like uh, energy secretary, it will, the North Sea oil will be gradually nationalised. Uh, and so, but again, like it's still, there's still a sense of this resource is being extracted from us 
and taken down to Westminster, which is completely distanced from us, and we're not getting the the benefit of it. And I think something that really sort of underscores this comparison between the Zygons and their shape-shifting nature and this sense of alienation in Scotland is the fact that uh, John Woodnut, who plays Forgill, also plays the Zygon leader Broton, which I didn't realise mm. for a long time. And then I just saw a shot and I was like, he kind of looks like the same person. And then I looked it up and apparently, yeah, it was. So, yeah, and, and I think the other point is the what Bethan was saying about the the Zygons as refugees, again, there's that sense of displacement. Um, I mean, also, there's something problematic there about kind of, you know, monstering a, uh, you know, people who are, mm, you know, fleeing yeah. from some kind of disaster. But again, I think this stuff isn't, I don't think this is self-consciously done. I think it's very much, it's just kind of registering these convulsions and tensions that are happening at the time. But I do think it's interesting for that reason. But yeah, overall, a solid story with some interesting themes. But I do think the use of the Zygons thematically will be used much better later on. I mean, particularly in the two-part Zygon story with Capaldi to, you know, which really uh, interrogates, I guess, um, the government's crackdown on terrorism at the time and the bombing of Syria and mm. things like that. But yeah. yeah, man, I mean, that comparison is by way of... Uh... A preview of our um, oh, yeah. series nine episodes, which will be upcoming at some point in the future, in the, the near future. And um, when you say he played the leader, do you mean like he was actually in the suit? Yeah, yeah, he was actually in the suit. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because I I saw a shot and I was like, he went method. It, I I don't know what it was. It was like it was either something about his voice, or like some kind of mannerism that came through the costume, and I was like. I'm sure that's the same person, and it is. So, yeah. Oh, okay, because I think I was a she. I think I was because I, I know that for at least some of them, they, I think they just play the voice of like the actor. Yeah, yeah. But they have different people in the suits than mm. the than the like corresponding human. If that makes mm. sense. Po- possibly. So, I mean, it did. It I did remind me of him. So I think he might have been in the suit, but I couldn't say for oh, certain. I'm, I'm pretty sure that. I'm pretty sure that is him. Yeah, I think I I think I have read somewhere that he plays both parts. It would make sense, like as you're saying, to like get across the mannerisms and stuff for for the one that's kind of the main, the main Zygon, wouldn't it? So. Yeah, I mean, as a sidebar, I do find the name Broton very funny as well. <laughs> Just in like it's it sounds like it's it's some kind of Californian surfer speak like. Late eighties Keanu Reeves should be saying, "Whoa, Broton!" <laughs> but that is very by the by. Or it's like a fun chemistry teacher way of explaining yes. the mm. elements of the nucleus. Because mm. they're Brotons, because they're really positive. I have to say, like what you were saying, Bethan, about the um, the Scarisan. Like I don't understand why. Like I, I'm very. I don't tend to criticize the classic series for its special effects because I think largely there's very little they could have done about it. What I do criticise them for is when they do something that they must have gone oh do you think we can do that? Probably not. Let's do it anyway. Mm. Like I had the same issue with Invasion of the Mm. Dinosaurs. It's like you know that you can't do like (laughs) an enormous creature so why why do it? (laughs) 
yeah, like, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That's just an extra thing, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny, actually, because in some ways, I think the the last section of this story, really the kind of latter half of episode four, feels like quite a new series move of sort of upping the scale suddenly at the end. Mm. And, in fact, specifically of threatening London, which is kind of a, a favourite move of... Well, of the new series in particular, although to be fair, the classic series does it quite a few times as well, with like Web of Fear, The Invasion, War Machines, handful of others. It just uh, that just kind of struck me as a, a fun similarity, especially given that I'm that I'm giving the story shit for like not being forty years ahead of its time. I I I feel like I'm I might as well acknowledge ways in which it is gesturing to things that the show will do later. Not London, that's where the stuff is. Hmm, it's where the female Prime Minister is, in this case. Oh. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's, that, that's a hard thing to parse, because it's, it's hard to... Like, it does seem to be... Because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Thatcher was Tory leader at this point, wasn't she? Uh, like yes, I, I believe she was, yeah. Yeah, because Heath had, Heath had gone after losing the election. Yes, that's right, yeah. Um, so it's it's hard not to believe that that is some kind of gesture in her direction, and certainly in hindsight, it's a, it's next to impossible to take it any other way. And it's hard to know what it's doing. Is it just kind of a uh, a slightly tongue in cheek joke? Because I I think apart from anything else, it's just hard to know what Thatcher meant to people mm. in seventy five, because we have pretty clear ideas of what she means to people now. And what she has meant to pe- to various groups of people since 1979. But it's a hard thing to kind of go back and excavate. As regards the, the thing that both of you mentioned, actually, of the, the Zygons being like kind of being refugees, essentially. Unfortunately, you mentioned the Unquiet Dead, uh, Bethan. And I think this does run into a similar problem as the Unquiet Dead. I think slightly less overtly, but it does run into the problem of like... As you kind of, as actually you said as well, Jacob, the 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 monstrous refugees. Mm. They're actually referred to as a, an, an incoming refugee fleet. Mm. And if I'm being honest, it was my my mind immediately went to kind of horrible reactionary great replacement theories when I heard that. Mm. And again, like there's an extent to which that's kind of me projecting a political climate of 2021 Mm. onto this story but at the same time it's not as though immigration and refugees were very far from people's minds in 1975 and i mean this is like almost the 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 high point in some ways of the national front yeah yeah very much i'm not suggesting for a moment that terror of the zygons is like a recruiting tool for the national front (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like that's obviously absurd and i i don't it's it's not something that i think is like as with the unquiet dead actually i don't think it's at all intentional but it's something that is buried in there somewhere and it leaves kind of a a bad taste in my mouth i have to say some of the uh not that it necessarily leaves a bad taste in my mouth but some of the like scottishnessness feels a bit off Mm. I don't know. Yeah, I know that what you mean. It's very stereotypical. 
Yeah, it reminds me of that episode of, Dar- of Garth Marenghi's Dark Places where he's like, <laughs> it's very like ha- that. he's haunted by the memories of like prejudice against Scottish people or something. What's prejudice the- from Scottish people. From like, Scottish people. From the like the time he was in Glasgow for an evening or something like that. And he has to heal with them by like respecting their culture. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was kind of a bit like... Sorry, that was a weird a weird time to explain the plot of an episode of Garth Marenghi's Dark Places. But um, it did feel a bit, yeah, quite outdated stereotypes now when you've got, like, the caber who just doesn't yeah. speak. Mm. I mean, it's. I will say it's nice to have a white strong man who doesn't speak in Doctor Who. That's a fun twist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they didn't quite get it away from the colonial... Well, no... <laughs> I guess that was that was a caber too far, because you could use a caber as like a bridge. Maybe mm, mm. that's that was the thing there. A lot of the stuff we're saying that it, that this is maybe unconsciously doing that's problematic, I think is very much symptomatic of the the UK's kind of you know imperial past and legacy. And I think mm. it, it, it's something mm. that does come through the Gothic aesthetic. Kate Orman's book on pyramids of mars is very good on that ah yeah which i will i will talk about later on uh, it's one of the black archive books but yeah i right, think i think yeah. we're going to c- yeah, come back I mean, to this we're... problem again and again throughout this season oh yeah we will <laughs> i mean how does this version of scotland compare to the version of ireland in uh, timeless children part, part uh, one of the cybermen yeah, that's what I want to know. It's like <sighs> more worse than that book. Oh, it's worse than that. Yeah, like, I mean definitely. That, but also, that was just a kind of like misty-eyed, weird, slightly benign stereotype, where there's like, you know, there's there's someone playing a fiddle just over the hill, and probably some people dancing a jig. But like, to be absolutely fair to Ascension of the Cybermen, which is probably not something I will say very often. At least that was meant to be an unreal place. Oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think the the pertinent example here is the depiction of whales in The Green Death. Oh, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Which is like, I think <laughs> runs into a lot of the same problems. Yes, this is it. this where the thing lives? No. It doesn't live anywhere. It just is. So, without further ado, let's move on to the planet of evil. Or planet of evil, actually. There's no there. Bethan, would you like to start us off on this journey? This is one of a couple where I don't think I have anything tremendously exciting to say about it. Although more stuff might come out in discussion. I feel like the first two parts of this story set up some stuff that could be quite interesting, but then it just sort of was baffling after that. Um, Things that I liked, I thought the set was very nice of the alien planet, Mm -hmm. at least. I know we've spoken already about how it's easier for the BBC to do the kind of period settings and have them look authentic than it is for them to do an alien planet, but I actually think in terms of creating a a landscape that looks alien but also we can kind of get a grasp on what it's 
and what it's representing I think the set design is very nice like the, the early scene sequences of the doctor and Sarah sort of going through the the sort of forest uh land is very pleasing and exciting just for like uh getting a sense of the terrain and stuff I find that this episode in attempting to do a kind of harder sci-fi than Doctor Who typically does kind of falls flat for me just because it it seems to fall in quite a lot to the like bad sci-fi trope of um people having very intense conversations about things like but no you can't go to warp for that will destroy us and then the other person (laughs) being like but i must Mm. and me watching it being like i don't know what happens at warp for (laughs) and i feel like with some of the stuff in this episode i think that possibly it is a real thing that they're referring to like i think there's a bit where they're like Salama has a neutron accelerator and I think that's supposed to be like a sort of nuclear reactor kind of thing I'm not sure but I didn't immediately know what that was or what the stakes were and I think that that's kind of a running problem with this episode it's also kind of weird because I I assume that the science on antimatter the, the understanding was different at the time but the way that they use it and talk about it in the story doesn't really match up with how I had like learnt about what it might be so that means that it ages a lot worse than Doctor Who plot lines tend to just because of the the fact that stuff like that so quickly becomes outdated and then there's not really for me there's not much more to the plot other than the the sort of science stuff because I think the characters are not particularly compelling there's the sort of controller guy the like youngish lad on the not the Enterprise low cut shirts shit um, and he kind of has this moment where he goes bad and starts sort of getting cross at everybody but he was never particularly nuanced as a character so from the beginning I was like oh I hate this guy he sucks and so then when he started doing things that were like bad I was like yeah well sounds about right for him <laughs> And I think the professor was more well drawn in that way because he like seemed kind of just dedicated to rocks at the beginning and then it kind of spiraled. I think that they captured the spiraling a bit more with Sorensen, but um yeah, I I think there was I think some interesting stuff was set up. I think it just didn't have for me the kind of interest of characters to propel it much further than that. Although I have written just in my notes, anti-man, exclamation mark, (laughs) which I feel like, I mean, that's just beautiful, really. And I feel like anti-man will live forever in my heart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I pretty much agree with you across the board. Like I, I kind of, I want to like this more than I do because I think it's got some interesting stuff going on. As you say, it's kind of going more for hard sci-fi than than Doctor Who has for a long time at this point. I mean, it's it's actually kind of a, a Hartnell era throwback. I think the story in that regard, and also just in the in the fact that it's kind of it, its premise is sort of landing on a an unknown, vaguely hostile planet and trying to figure out what the rules of it are, 
which is kind of the structure of a lot of Hardnell stories. If you think of something like the Web Planet, is probably the most obvious example. And yeah, I I I want to like that more than I do. I find I just find this one very very dreary and very grim, and as you as you kind of suggested, very techno babbly. This is really one of the stories I was thinking of earlier when I was talking about that kind of pervading grimness and. I mean, thank heavens for Tom Baker, who, like, does a lot to liven it up. But it's it's got that thing of, like, a sort of spaceship full of people who are just more or less destined to die and don't get a huge amount to do before that. As a result, there's not a whole lot of human drama going on here, I think. Or alien drama. Or alien drama, yeah. Like, in that regard, I think there's a there's an interesting comparison to be had here. Because you mentioned um, Salomar's sort of descent into sort of authoritarianism. Which actually reminded me quite a lot, maybe just because it was on my mind at the time, but it reminded me quite a lot of um, Hindle in Kinda. Who actually, it's a vaguely similar sort of plotline in that you've got a kind of younger, vaguely military figure who is kind of hidebound to rules and specific to a specific manual, uh, who sort of resents an older authority figure, although in Hindle's case, he, that figure is literally his commanding officer, and who kind of ultimately breaks down under pressure. But the difference is with Hindle, there is a sense of like a complete human being there, to some degree at least. There's a sense of why he might be that way. There are little kind of references little lines of dialogue he refers to his father and stuff like that and it's kind of suggested that he's brought up in that kind of mindset and that might be part of what's lying behind all of this this kind of strange relationship with a patriarch this kind of thing but with Salomar there's just none of that it's just like his his character is his role in the plot and that's kind of it now there is a little more with Sorensen I do agree he is a slightly more interesting character but Again, I can see how there's there's some interesting stuff here. Um, the kind of the sense of being on the very edge of the universe, which is stressed a few times, is interesting. And there's a, there's a sense of this as kind of an edge case in some ways of a Doctor Who story as well. In that it's kind of um, Lovecraftian is the, the adjective that gets applied to this a lot. And there's some truth to it because there's a sense of like a fundamentally hostile planet in this case which i don't mind here i actually have more of a problem with this in other stories that we will come to there's a kind of an anti-humanism to it i think of a kind of like um uh not even an indifferent cosmos but an actively antagonistic one um bethan has just pointed to the phrase to the word anti-man and underlined it several times and actually yeah that really stands in for a lot of what this story is doing in a way that I hadn't quite grasped up to this point. <laughs> is it actually... Is Anti-Man actually a clever... Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I'd be open to that possibility. Yeah. Um, and, like, while I'm not often a big fan of sort of nihilism and cynicism in Doctor Who, I do think it works here in a way that it often doesn't for me. And, in fact won't in a story that is coming up extremely soon mm. but yeah overall I, i'd say i'll i'm fairly ambivalent on this one i'd say uh jacob 
Uh, I'm in the surprising position of being slightly more positive about this, actually, which is unusual. I have to say I've seen this a few times now. Uh, I first got it when it came out on DVD, uh, which I don't know when that was, probably like 2012 or something. Maybe it was even earlier. It was probably even earlier, actually. Mm. Anyway, I was, as you can imagine, when I was younger, I was not massively keen on this because I didn't get anything that it was doing at all. Uh, I just found it extremely dull. I still think that there's some awful acting in this, particularly from Prentice Hancock, who plays Salomar. And yeah, I think it, I think it's very uneven. Um, so as you were saying, like I think that jungle set is great. You know, it's kind of famously uh, mm. like you know seen as one of the best kind of examples of an alien planet on the program uh, in the classic series, at least. And I think that's definitely deserved but the the stuff on the ship is much more boring i suspect maybe they blasted the budget on on the jungle planet and then didn't have anything left Mm. Uh, (laughs) but um i do think this has some interesting stuff going on thematically though and i do think it's intelligent like it is an intelligent script in that sense but as you were saying there is a complete lack of character and and you know uh, the characters are almost just like functional, really. So yeah, I mean, really, this is an, another another kind of pastiche. Um, this time, Jekyll and Hyde is is kind of, uh, I guess, what it's reworking mm. really. And I think there's a there's a there's a clear narrative running throughout this story of exploitation of the environment and natural resources is is. Uh, mm. Is kind of the main theme. The Doctor talks about them tampering with forces of nature they don't understand. Sorensen is exploiting the planet for its mineral resources because he thinks that it can provide the restaurant empire, because they are an empire, which is also interesting in this context, mm. with uh, perpetual energy. And that idea of, as you were saying, that idea of being at the edge of the universe, you know, being at this kind of frontier... It, there is something about that again. Sorry, I keep raising like empire and imperialism, but I think it's kind of completely interweaved with this whole season. Um, mm. There is something of that that idea again. I mean, the Doctor literally says about Zeta Minor, it's the boundary. Well, not Zeta Minor. Sorry, Zeta Minor is the planet they come from. I mean, the the planet where they're getting these resources. Uh, he says mm. it's the boundary between existence as you know it. Uh, and the other universe, which you just don't understand. And then he talks about how they've crossed the boundary into that other universe to plunder it. So it's clearly invoking those, you know, those kind of terms about like imperial plunder and, and empire and so on. What I think this episode does particularly, or story does particularly well, is it sets up these binaries throughout the whole, uh, the whole story. So you have like. Matter versus antimatter. You have Sorensen versus the Antiman, which is, I guess, another iteration of that matter versus antimatter uh, dichotomy. You have the military versus science. You know, it's a military vessel versus Sorensen, who's who's a scientist, and there's there's kind of conflict between the two of them. Mm. Um, you know, on the one hand, the military vessel, their mission is just to get him back, get Sorensen and the others back. Sorensen obviously is insistent that they stay, you know, for scientific inquiry, I guess, and because, well, for his, his own ego in many ways. 
and then there's this this distinction between uh, man and nature as well, in the sense that they're extracting these resources, and then there's some kind of retribution for that as a result. But then it's also about the collapse of those binaries and the way that they come together and they interact. So the creature and the Sorensen in one body, the matter and the antimatter colliding, and so on. And I think what's really interesting for me is the way in which the collapse of those binaries feeds into a narrative about the idea that at the end of the the universe, I guess, at this frontier, they are encountering what they what they don't understand. And there's a there's a there's a sense in which yeah, their whole understanding of the way the universe works, you know, and, and maybe the binaries through which they think about uh, the way in which the universe and their world works start to collapse, and I think one of the the interesting images in that regard is the pool on the planet. So there's the black pool that's sort of like the the gateway, I guess, between the the matter and the antimatter universe. Um, so it's where Sorensen is at the the start, like collecting the minerals. The Doctor falls through it later on. Uh, one of the antimatter creatures comes up out of it. But they make like a very explicit reference to the fact that you can't see anything. Like they look into it, and you and and I think Sarah Jane says there's no there's no reflection. So it's that idea again of this is somewhere that is so beyond your understanding that it won't even reflect back to you what you know, i.e. your own image. And I guess like the and I was very concerned about about talking about this because it's complicated, but. I guess the closest kind of comparison I can come to is the idea of the uh, Lacanian real. Right. Yeah, which which is why I'm talking about binaries and this idea of the, you know, like the symbolic. Mm. Um, so essentially, the simplest way to describe it would be essentially you have reality and you have the real and they are not the same thing. So reality is made up of uh, the symbolic and the imaginary. So the symbolic is kind of our, our language, our codes, signs, systems of symbols. Uh, and then the imaginary is, yeah, like the way in which we perceive ourselves. Uh, Lacan talks about it, particularly in relation to the kind of the mirror stage, which is the point at which, you know, uh, as a child, you look into the mirror and you identify that the image in the mirror is you for the first time. So that's what our reality is made up of. And then the real is what's behind that. So the real is what is outside the symbolic orders that we construct and the way in which we understand, you know, our society and our world. And in many ways, what the what what this episode really is, is a glimpse of of the real. Uh, what's scary and what's horrifying about this episode is the glimpse of something that we don't understand. Uh, and I mean, it's literally put in those terms, like I was saying, the doctor says, uh, the boundary between existence as you know it and the other universe which you just don't understand uh, and that's just one example there's numerous others and I think that's why it's important that you have this collapse of binaries into you know matter and antimatter into the form of the anti-man and so on because at least in a Lacanian sense he's coming off kind of structuralist theory so he's thinking about the symbolic order as constructed out of these binaries and those things collapse when we reach this edge of the universe. One thing that I, I would say that I think is kind of 
there's a couple well, there's a couple of things I think are problematic. One is of course this binary between nature and society, which I'm not going to go into again because I've done it enough times. But yeah, essentially I think the idea of man simply acting upon nature is is kind of problematic and doesn't really explain things. But in relation to what we were talking about about kind of imperialism and empire and the this story's invocation of that and ideas of the frontier. I think what it does do in describing it through the Lacanian reel is it brings me back to that idea of imperial melancholia that Paul Gilroy talks about, the idea that we can't face up to, or at least the people making this programme, can't face up to uh, our uh, his- the UK's history of empire and, and exploitation. Because the reel is, I guess the, way- the best way to describe it would be you can't really talk about it because it it's outside the symbolic order. So you can't put it into words. Yeah, you and you can't understand it, and that's why you can only glimpse it. I mean, Mark Fisher kind of talks about it as a traumatic void. And I think in hmm. doing a story about frontier, about you know imperial expansion and extraction, and talking about those things through the real, it gives a real indication about this program's issue, particularly at this time, with trying to face up to those kind of injustices, because it, you know, in doing it through a kind of void, it just implies that that's something we can't face up to, uh, and that we should just ignore, and obviously we shouldn't. And I think, yeah, again, the Jekyll and Hyde kind of reworking is problematic in that sense as well, because, you know, it's a story that kind of comes from high period of empire, I guess, in the Victorian era. But yeah, I think overall, it it's an intelligent script. Um, I think it, it builds up themes in ways that are interesting and coherent. It is problematic. It certainly is uneven, and it can be dull at times. And there is some appalling acting. But yeah, overall, I found it very interesting. It's interesting we get the Jekyll and Hyde take in the not Scottish mm. environment because isn't Jekyll and Hyde Robert Louis Stevenson? Yeah. Not that it should have been in the Scottish setting, but it's mm. just kind of yeah. a fun, interesting aspect of that whole. Although I suppose the Zygons are kind of like the horrifying other. Yeah. Thing, but it's not quite as literal a. No. And uh, the Zygons are almost more like a changeling thing in some ways. I mean, Jekyll and Hyde is interesting as well because uh, obviously, and you were kind of alluding to this, but like it is obviously itself enforcing a kind of binary. But with yeah. Jekyll and Hyde coming as it does, as you said, from that kind of uh, high imperial phase, the specific binary going on there is uh, between the civilized and the savage. Mm. Yeah, in some sense. Yeah. Um. So I think in some ways, and like. There's, there's tons of interesting work on uh, on Jekyll and Hyde and how it embodies those kinds of uh, those kinds of imperial assumptions and what it means to put those two things together in one body, as well as uh, you know psychoanalytic stuff on how on the 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 Jungian shadow and stuff like that. But I think what you were saying about how this story fits into this particular period with its kind of blind spots around empire. The thing that I found myself thinking of is the fact that it struck me while watching the story that the the crew members on the ship have 
what seems to be a very deliberate mix of uh, implicit nationalities uh, or linguistic codes, if you like, in their names. You've got Brown, you've got Vashinsky, Salomar for that matter. Sorensen. Sorensen, yeah. Um, Yeah. But there's a couple of problems. Number one is the fact that they are all men. Yeah. I've written down in my notes that uh, this might be why they seem to so set on regarding Sarah as a hostile alien. But there is also the fact that while they do have a black crew member, progress, um, (laughs) for not the first time in the series, but like not very many precedents, Mm. there is a a bit where um, Parvati, who strangely enough we never see... There, whoever it is, is I can't remember who it is, might be Salomar, is talking to him on the radio. And the person on the other end seems to just be doing a strange parody of like a vaguely Indian accent. So I had a look at the credits and it turns out it's Michael Wisher. Oh, God. Doing an Indian accent. So, yeah, that I I feel like that says quite a lot about the kind the blind spots. Uh, going on here and I just like threw my notes to the floor in a fit of peak. <laughs> um the I mean the the other thing actually that I completely forgot to mention about the Jekyll and Hyde thing is the fact that it's almost it's portrayed as a kind of when Sorensen, you know, is turning into the anti man anti man, it's portrayed as almost like a kind of contamination or infection. And that in and of itself has kind of problematic associations with with you know, empire and kind of racist tropes. Uh, again, Kate Orman talks about this in in the book that I mentioned earlier, and how unfortunately a lot of the the gothic fiction that that, that is being used and repurposed, or maybe repurposed is too strong a word, but it's being yeah, there's pastiches of gothic fiction anyway. They do use those problematic tropes. Uh, you know, there's almost like this fear of like becoming, you know, like quote-unquote savage which is just Mm, awful mm. um yeah so i think that's kind of something to to watch out for i guess as well uh and again will reoccur in this season and others Mm. also another thing i wanted to raise the acting right i don't know if you found this but i found myself laughing at the point where they're going towards the planet and they're going to crash and instead of having like a computer saying like we're gonna crash in however many minutes or whatever impact in so and so minutes, it's Sarah and Vashinsky, and Vashinsky and Sarah just looking looking at the screen, and then occasionally Vashinsky just turns to her and goes, ten minutes to impact," and then turns to look back at the screen, and then does it again. And it just, mm. it just, the, the whole like the whole setup of that just made me laugh like out loud. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, there are a lot of moments in this episode where uh, I was laughing when I probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, unfortunately. Mm. Most uh. notably, probably the hip thrusting death throws. <laughs> yeah. People that get got. Oh, also, just uh, the guy who's played by Michael Wisher is called Ranjit. Oh God, how did uh, I get that? Wrong? You might have mixed it up with Ponty. Yeah, God. Via Morelli, who's also played by Michael Wish. Yes. <laughs> My God, yes. Sorry Some about that. Some kind of fusion. Where did I get from? Um, I was actually going to bring up as well with the names, though, um, how about they're clearly going for a kind of international feel. Hmm. 
and I, I guess the way, I guess it's kind of implied that this is this, this like bigger idea of an empire because they're all part of the Morestrian empire. Mm. So for the reading there, but it also felt like very, we are doing Star Trek, but not as well. Because <laughs> like I, I, they have that kind of like mi- they have like a mixture of different crew members of different nationalities in the original series and they also do the like hard sci-fi stories quite a lot but like the original series is like fun and this just wasn't very fun yeah i mean yes the the star trek thing is is i i actually meant to mention that as well with the of of the obvious caveat that like the star trek bridge has uhura Mm. so they're not going that far what a lady Mm, mm. a woman of color the Morestrians they don't have but you've already explained the Morestrians don't have any women which is why they appear not to now yeah from the evidence we presented with on screen we can only assume they don't Mm. I don't think I have any more to say about this actually do you have any more Jacob no that is that is everything the only thing I would add if anyone wants a really good explanation of Lacanian theory, because mine is inadequate, Plastic Pills on YouTube has two very good videos on the real and the mirror stage, mm. which are well worth watching. That sounds really good, actually, because Lacan is notoriously difficult to like get your head around, especially if you actually read his work, which is mind-boggling yeah impenetrable I had felt like I understood it from mm. I had felt like I understood it from what you said Jacob but um it may be that there's more that I just don't know that I don't know you know that's very Lacanian in itself <laughs> thank you uh and on that note let's move on to pyramids of Mars because I feel like we've already built up to it quite a bit actually mm. just destroy me Sutek Nothing else now is left within your power. Identify yourself. It is within my power to choose the manner of your death. I can, if I choose, keep you alive for centuries, racked by the most excruciating pain. Since your interference has condemned me forever to remain a prisoner in the Eye of Horus, it would be a fitting end. You would make an amusing diversion. Jacob, actually, why don't you start us off in this one? Well, this is widely regarded as a classic. I don't know, like, again, I have quite mixed feelings about this one. I grew up with it again, like many Doctor Who fans did. There is some really good stuff in it. I think Baker gives a really... Tom Baker gives a really good performance. Hmm. I think he, as he will in Seeds of Doom as well, he's... He does a really good job of kind of showing the enormity of of the threat that they're facing in terms of you know the idea that Sutek wants to just like destroy everything essentially, mm. and I think that's also conveyed really well uh, in that little moment where they take a trip to the future and they see mm. the kind of ruined wasteland that that it will be on the other like and yeah like the whole obviously like the gothic aesthetic again as I was saying earlier. Yeah, it means that it does hold up quite well, just like from a purely visual perspective. However, it is also deeply problematic. You know, mm. there are racist tropes in this. There is this whole 
thing as well about like the implication that the Osirans built the pyramids, which mm-hmm. you know is is dodgy as well because it's like well that's just implying that Egyptians couldn't have done it themselves or whatever. Like, mm, yeah, yeah, that that's uncomfortable, and it has that kind of that like sort of stereotypical English setting, mm. which I talked about uh, in the previous uh, episode in the Christmas special one when we talked about the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe. That sort of stereotypically mm, nostalgic mm. English setting that makes England synonymous with uh, the United Kingdom and in doing so purposefully erases any inequalities within the UK and more importantly erases empire and the fact that that unfortunately there was a British empire. So there's all of that going on. Kate Orman's book, which I've mentioned I don't know how many times in this, I'm sorry, but it's well worth a read, goes through kind of the different things that this episode is drawing on. So Hammer Horror films, which themselves are influenced by, you know, uh, gothic horror. And she talked, one of the big questions she kind of asks and, and raises is, you know, how much of this is a result of the source material that the episode is using and how much of it is kind of the episode itself. Hmm you know, kind of doing these things. So, yeah, very, very mixed feelings about it. Uh, very uncomfortable about numerous elements of it. But there is some good stuff here. Betha? I have I, I have similarly mixed feelings, I think it's fair to say. I imagine we probably all do. I feel like I probably am maybe, slight, am maybe a bit more negative on it, just because I feel like there's a problem with setting up an all-powerful opponent in um, anything really but specifically Doctor Who for the sake of this podcast Um, and then having to have your protagonists outwit them in a way that doesn't compromise the idea of that being this all-powerful unless you want to like come up with a weakness for them and the Pyramids of Mars never really establishes a weakness for Sutek, so I think the ending feels very anticlimactic, but also all the build-up is quite didn't quite land for me. There were some nice moments, like the cliffhanger with the hands burning, with the hands of the like acolyte of Sutek that arrives. I think it's at the end of part one, mm, yeah, um, yeah, and it's like burning him. That's really like in, that's really intense. I think that some of the sort of suspense does build, but then a lot of the suspense. Or, or the action is uh, the mummies sort of lumbering around, mm. which I don't think is very um, effective because they just look quite big and clumsy. Although I do find it funny when um, that one guy is like crushed between the sort of angular bosoms of the mummies. But um, I think that it's difficult because when the doctor sort of uh, is in Sutek's, I don't know, chambers. He's sat there in his, like, gamer chair or whatever. And the... And, and it seems it seems like for a moment at the beginning of episode four, I think it is, that the stakes have changed and that it's about the Doctor and Sutek in a kind of battle of wits. 
and I was really intrigued by that, partly because, you know, some nice performance from Tom Baker there, it looks like it's going to be intense, but then the resolution of that is just the thing of him being trapped in the time corridor, so it doesn't really play out in this, like, one Time Lord versus the Osiren in this kind of high-stakes like 3d chess thing i was hoping for it's just it feels a bit like it feels kind of that they didn't know how to resolve the issue of having an all-powerful being so they just didn't Mm. and this this is this is one of the ones where there are numerous moments where the sensible thing to do on the part of the villains would just be to kill the doctor or sarah jane or both but they don't because they can't because it's doctor who (laughs) and so it just falls flat I think that's kind of... Obviously, I I agree with the points being raised about the the racism. I'd be interested to know if one of the, like, horror inspirations was specifically Lovecraftian, because I think that there's some resonances of um, Niall Athotep, the kind of... Mm. um, I don't know how to describe him, because he's not terribly well described in Lovecraft, but he's kind of a pharaoh, elder god person, and he gains followers by his technological marvels or something uh but he's bas he's kind of eldritch pharaoh basically and so i feel like i'd be interested to know if that was a specific inspiration because it wasn't really lovecraft wasn't really in vogue hmm. as he is now in his work not his personal ideas hmm. because he was actually far more racist than this story and that doesn't that isn't a positive reflection on this story. <laughs> mm. Lovecraft managed the incredible feat of being astonishingly racist by the standards of the early 20th century. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But it's kind of I suppose it's it's kind of a dry run for Talons of Wang Chiang, really, isn't it? <laughs> like the baddie is 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 a god of some kind mm. from another culture, so it's it feels spooky. I don't know. I feel like I've been I've been quite, I feel like I'm talking quite down on it, and I am to some extent down on it, but I thought some of the dialogue was nice. The bit where the doctor's talking to the science lad is quite sweet, and I do like some of the spookiness of the walking corpse brother that he has, Mm. and I said I like that cliffhanger, but I just feel like, for me, Sutek and the mummies, which will be my band name, fundamentally don't really work as an antagonistic force for me. Yeah, I mean, I think I tend to think of this as the quintessential Hinchcliffe Holmes story, I think. Because it's 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 all there. You know, you've got the the return of like an ancient evil, which is kind of a a, a trademark of these stories. And uh, certainly we'll see it at least once in the rest of this season. It's got the the vaguely gothic trappings and specifically the Hammer Horror influence. And I say gothic trappings advisedly, by the way, and I'll come back to this, I think, when we talk about Brain of Morbius. It's quite racist. It's also actually, we should say, like, actually written by Robert Holmes, which is probably one of the reasons for all of the above and all of the below. Uh, as was Talents of Wang Chiang, by the way. Ah, there's no women at all, besides Sarah Jane. Some uh, of the mummies are women. Well, maybe. And there is the fact that it is, as Jacob said, regarded as a classic. And 
loved by large sections of fandom. It came to number eight in the 2014 Doctor Who magazine poll of all stories. It was judged the eighth best episode, which... Mm. And as you can probably tell by my tone and th- the way I've been referring to it all along, I'm quite ambivalent about this story. I like, for all of the reasons that both of you have just said, I think on the subject of Sutek himself, I'm a little bit, probably a little bit more positive about him than you are, Bethan, but like, I do get what you mean. I've always thought he was like, he's a villain that a lot of people seem to love. And I think a lot of that comes down to Gabriel Wolf's performance, uh, which is great. And I was thinking about it while watching it, and I think I've realised that what's great about it, I think this is perhaps under underrecognised by people who possibly take the story extremely seriously. His performance is pitched somewhere between the kind of naturalistic, insofar as that can apply to a character like Sutek, and the incredibly melodramatic. He manages to bring in elements of both, so that he sounds genuinely scary and sinister but also like the kind of ranting ancient alien that he apparently is and i think that's a genuinely really impressive achievement to try to marry those two things together that said you're totally right that the way he is dispatched is ludicrously terrible and in fact i would extend that to all of episode four of this story which is a remarkable letdown as you say, it starts with like a good old-fashioned showdown between the Doctor and the villain, in which the Doctor is like comprehensively outpowered, which is kind of an interesting thing in itself. But then we get to, of all things, a rerun of Death to the Daleks <laughs> and the kind of weird cereal box puzzles from that. I forgot to mention, it's like the capture the capture challenge like it's the it's the like it's this it's the capture you have to fill in before you can get to the secret room in doctor <laughs> who stories where you're like things going well it's great and then all of a sudden you have to pick all of the pictures with a car in them and mm. it's like oh my god no <laughs> it's weird the story the, the story the, the show seems to keep thinking that doing puzzles on screen is going to be interesting one of these days because it seems to keep coming back to it in the uh, Celestial Toymaker, which is just puzzles. Death to the Daleks, this story. Five Doctors, although that's probably the least worst. And then at the at the end of all of this, we get this resolution, sorry, resolution where the Doctor flips a switch and traps Sutek. And what's, I think, even worse than that is the fact that throughout we have had this strange sort of conflict thing where... Marcus Scarman seems to have some vestige of his humanity and his brother Lawrence thinks he can reach out to him and is proven kind of right and then wrong. And so finally we get this moment where Sutek's influence seems to leave Scarman and he, his will, his humanity returns to him and then he just dies. There's just nothing to it. There is no dramatic heft to it whatsoever. And that to me I kind of gets at a lot of what I object to here this is I referred to this a little bit with Planet of Evil but I I find this story really unpleasantly nihilistic and like anti-humanistic in a few different ways one of them is kind of um what you were referring to Jacob about the the ancient aliens aliens built the pyramid these kinds of 
theories, which are unpleasantly racist to begin with. But also, when all of Egyptian culture and religion are kind of a sci-fi thing that are attributable to these really powerful aliens, and it does seem to be all of Egyptian culture, so we even get like the the Coptic jars used as a um, some kind of force field thing, I can't remember exactly. But when all of these are attributed to aliens rather than to human ingenuity and human imagination, then there's a sense of kind of just pointlessness to human endeavour. And this is reinforced, I think, by the... Apart from the Scarman thing that I was just referring to, even the, like, the trip to 1980, to the, like, destroyed future, kind of gets at that. Because the Doctor specifically says... It takes a being of uh, Sutek's almost limitless power to destroy the future. Which suggests that the only influence that can be exerted over the future is by something extremely powerful. Not by human endeavour, but by some lad from beyond the stars who like crashes down and just destroys everything. So yeah, I hate that. Uh, it, like, it's partly, uh, um, obviously, just as I'm kind of suggesting, just a philosophical disagreement. But also, I just, I really fundamentally think Doctor Who is at its best when it engages with the human. This is something that we've talked about, especially with regard to the new series. It's something that is kind of introduced, um, well, not introduced, but it's a strain that is picked up by um, Russell T. Davies and then by Stephen Moffat. I think coming in part from Paul Cornell, actually, more than anyone, uh, out of the new adventures. Human nature is kind of the obvious touchstone there, but it's um, it's kind of in all of his work. But the thing is, that's not not there in the classic series. It's there in plenty of great stories. And I think this feels almost like a betrayal of that. Like, a, a, it's confusing an epic register with drama. And, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> on just almost every level. It, and it, that doesn't mean that I hate this story, because I do think there are good things in it. Um, I, as I said, I really like Gabriel Wolf's performance. I also really like Tom Baker's performance, and Liz Slayton's, actually. Uh, I think there's some... For all of the, the kind of grimness, I think there's some genuine kind of wit and charm to the... Um, to the... I love the Doctor's dialogue in particular. I mean, um, that's something that, for all his kind of habitual cynicism, Holmes is always very good at, and um, is writing these kind of these moments of kind of wit and levity, and it's something that you see pretty much every episode he ever wrote for the show. But yeah, ultimately there is something about this story that really does not sit well with me. You can probably hear how worked up it makes me on a a fundamental level. I, there's just a real disagreement between me and this story that uh, and maybe it's part it's partly probably just a contrarian influence on the fact that it's so beloved and i'm and i just don't feel that at all but it is also i think it really just rubs me up the wrong way it leaves a bad taste in my mouth it offends all of my senses at once (laughs) it smells Wow, I can't believe that you just uh, revealed to us that you actually hate Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is the the secret of this podcast has been building up to all this time. Yes. Can't you just sit down with Sutek and like talk this out or something? 
<laughs> Let, let's let's get you guys a time corridor and you can like work through some of this. The funny thing is, this isn't even going to be last on my list for this <laughs> reason. <laughs> the thing is, though, I feel like I don't know what you both think about this, but I feel like this is almost symptomatic of the way in which people have often historically consumed this program. In that, and this was the case for me amongst other people, like. Because, you know, it came out in the 60s and the 70s, and then there was a long period before they, they started releasing on video VHS in the 80s, I think, in the mid-80s onwards, and very, very slowly. So I think for a lot of people, and you couldn't record, obviously, so for a lot of people, they saw this on, on you know when they were young, or if they were older, mm-hmm. they didn't see this at all. But they saw clips through like documentaries and things like that, mm. or they mm. read the target novelizations, and that was it. And so all all people saw of certain episodes for many many years were the best bits, you know, put mm. into compilations or documentaries. And so everyone from those moments has gone. This is a classic. But it was like you were saying, like the last episode is is terrible, you know, uh, for the most part, mm. and. Um, I think there's a sense in which a lot of what are considered classics are considered classics not because people have looked at, you know, the whole thing and gone, does this work as a, a cohesive whole? They've gone, oh, do you remember that bit where the guy mm. puts his smoking hands onto this other guy and kills him? You know, like stuff like that, mm. like sort of iconic images rather than actually mm. assessing the stories as a whole. I think it, it's quite self-perpetuating as well because um, I mentioned that I'd seen some of at least some of Pyramids of Mars. Um, I think that might have been in a similar like seeing clips. Mm-hmm. But I had like a book that said which Doctor Who episodes were good, uh, which stories were good rather. And so when I was ordering DVDs from the library as a youngster, I would order the ones that were said to be good Mm -hmm. and so then the ones that people say are these classics are the ones that people seek out which led to like talons of weng chiang being one of the ones that i watched when i was sort of early teens Mm -hmm. just because it was supposed to be good and it had the doctor and leela in it i had the fourth doctor and leela in it sorry and so i think it's quite important in a way that now when we have the luxury of so much Doctor Who being available to us, we kind of come to things and look at them as they are, not through this kind of lens of how fandom over, like as long as the show's been running, has had time to build up ideas of what certain stories might be like Mm. versus what they're actually like. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I think... Yeah, you. I mean, you see, there are waves of sort of like re uh, reassessment, I guess, over the over the years, uh, where certain eras kind of fall in and out of favor as people go back and look at them in different ways. And uh, like, um, I mean, for instance, the the Pertwee era was very out of favor in a lot of fandom for the nineties. There were a lot of the the even you get some novels from that time that are kind of implicitly or otherwise critiques of the Pertwee era so that that kind of happens in ways this is also why I have a firm stance that when when it comes to rating episodes when it comes to like rating one story against another that this kind of thing 
I tend not to consider any story with a missing episode mm. in relation to another. Because I don't think you can. Mm. I think if you haven't seen the story, if you can't see the story, then you're probably missing something. And like, I think this has been proven, in fact, uh, in some regards, in like, when Enemy of the World was recovered in uh, 2013. That was a story that nobody really thought very much of. But it's now, I think it's probably regarded by a lot of people as like a highlight of Triton's era. Mm. Because they've seen it now. And they've realised actually it's quite good. Or very good even. Conversely, I think there was a... Web of Fear was recovered at the same time. Although there is still an episode of that missing. And there was this web of... <laughs> this web of mystique that uh, grew up around the web of fear because like oh it's the first appearance of the brigadier it's kind of like some of the elements of the Pertwee era are being introduced here and well maybe this is just my own bias but I don't like web of fear very much and I do like the Pertwee era a lot and it feels like it's that's one of those stories where it's kind of what it represents within fandom kind of seems to outweigh what it actually is, mm. what is actually on the screen. And I think, yeah, I, th- I think Pyramids of Mars has taken on something of that. For all that Pyramids of Mars is and always, to a greater or lesser extent, has been available. It's never, in the sense that it's never gone missing. Uh, although it wasn't necessarily, as you say, that available for fans in the early days of fandom. It has become one of these stories, I think, that... And this is true for a lot of stories in this era, I think. Um, in some cases, I would say quite rightly, um, that this mythos gets built up around them. And I think that's partly what accounts for the regard in which Sutek is held, actually. Because he actually doesn't get a huge amount of screen time. I was surprised rewatching it that he's really not in it nearly as much as I remember it. And the, he only really confronts the Doctor at all for about five minutes total. If even that. And while it's a fairly memorable five minutes, it is that thing of like a clip, a moment that in some way kind of comes to represent the whole. And I think this is particularly a problem with the classic series because the classic series, even good classic series stories, to be honest, often do feel when you watch them like memorable moments that are strung together with padding, quite frankly in terms of the way they're paced from a uh, modern perspective anyway. And they're, I mean, for that matter, there are plenty of news stories that are like that as well. But there's, there is something in that of the, the kind of the, 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 the myth of what the story is kind of outpacing the reality of what it is in a way that is almost weirdly thematically suited to this kind of era era, except of course that in case of something like this, the reality of what Sutek is is apparently all-powerful or whatever, until you flip a switch. So, I feel like we've wrung Pyramids of Mars fairly dry, but is there anything else? Uh, no. 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 Jacob? Well and truly wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oof. I might need a shower. Um, so... That brings us to the end, then, of part one of our look at um, season 13. I have to remind myself what season it was. So you can join us next time when we'll be looking at the Android Invasion, Brain of Morbius, and the Seeds of Doom. And then we will be ranking this season. 
So I hope you can join us for that. Um, until then, I have been Kieran. I've been Bethan. I've been Jacob. Thank you very much. See you then. Thank you.